You may be seated. Today's scripture lesson is the 19th chapter of Exodus, and I'll give you a moment to find it in your Bible if you wish to follow along. It's Exodus chapter 19. In the third month after the Israelites left Egypt, on the very day they came to the desert of Sinai, after they set out from Rephidim, they entered the desert of Sinai, and Israel camped there in the desert in front of the mountain. Then Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the house of Jacob, and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt, and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. So Moses went back and summoned the elders of the people and set before them all of the words the Lord had commanded him to speak. The people all responded together, we will do everything the Lord has said. So Moses brought their answer back to the Lord. The Lord said to Moses, I am going to come to you in a dense cloud so that the people will hear me speaking with you and will always put their trust in you. Then Moses told the Lord what the people had said. And the Lord said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow. Have them wash their clothes and be ready by the third day because on that day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. Put limits for the people around the mountain and tell them, be careful that you do not go up the mountain or touch the foot of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall surely be put to death. He shall surely be stoned or shot with arrows. Not a hand is to be laid on him. Whether man or animal, he shall not be permitted to live. Only when the man's ram's horn sounds a long blast may they go up to the mountain. After Moses had gone down the mountain to the people, he consecrated them, and they washed their clothes. Then he said to the people, Prepare yourselves for the third day. Abstain from sexual relations. On the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning with a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. Everyone in the camp trembled. Then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. The smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a furnace. The whole mountain trembled violently, and the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder. Then Moses spoke, and the voice of God answered him. The Lord descended to the top of Mount Sinai and called Moses to the top of the mountain. So Moses went up and the Lord said to him, go down and warn the people so they do not force their way through to see the Lord and many of them perish. Even the priests who approach the Lord must consecrate themselves or the Lord will break out against them. Moses said to the Lord, the people cannot come up Mount Sinai because you yourself warned us put limits around the mountain and set it apart as holy. The Lord replied, go down and bring Aaron up with you. But the priests and the people must not force their way through to come up to the Lord or he will break out against them. 
So Moses went down to the people and told them, this is the word of the Lord. Pray with me. Father, as we come now to your word, be with us sinners as we seek to live it out and hear its calling on our lives. Be with me, a sinner, as I seek to proclaim it. Be conforming us more and more all to the likeness of your Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. So what does it mean to be the people of God? That is really the question from this text. What does it mean to be the people of God? We throw around that phrase sometimes. Israel in the Old Testament we would refer to as the people of God. The church in our age is the people of God. But it is one of those titles that we can use without reflecting on what it means. And really that question confronts us because it is the question confronting Israel in the book of Exodus. You can think about the book of Exodus, which we've been preaching to, as really dividing into two parts. And we have just finished the first part, part one of Exodus, which is the story of Israel being delivered from slavery, brought out of Egypt by God's mighty acts and these plagues, brought through the Red Sea, and Pharaoh's army destroyed, provided for in the desert. They've reached this point where they've gone from slaves in Egypt to these free people in the desert. And really, there's been this arc that... Our chapter this morning brings us to the very end of. Back in Exodus 3, when God first appears to Moses, he says, I will be with you, and this will be a sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you've brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. So Moses is up on Mount Sinai in Exodus 3. 80 years before this, when, um, when Israel still in slavery, and now at the beginning of our passage... We read that on the first day of the third month after the Israelites left Egypt, on that very day, they came to the desert of Sinai. After they set out from Rephidim, they entered the desert, and Israel camped there in the desert in front of the mountain. So God has been faithful to his word. That plot arc is finished, and Israel has now arrived at this mountain where God said he would bring them. But there's still a lot of the book of Exodus left to go. And the reason is that while Israel is now no longer slaves in Egypt, they don't really know what they are. They, what does it mean for them to be this free people now? More than that, what does it mean for them to be God's people who he has saved? How should that affect how they treat each other and how they live in the world and how they identify themselves? And the rest of Exodus And really the whole rest of the the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, is occupied with that question. God begins to write this constitution for Israel, this code of laws about how they're supposed to live together and what it means to be his people. He's saying, this is what I am calling you to be. And our chapter is really a transition between those two sections. As Israel has arrived at Mount Sinai, God is about to meet with them, and in particular, he's preparing them to understand what it means to be his people. And that's good for us, because if Israel, I think, wrestled with that question, we do too. For a long time in the West, being a Christian, right, identifying as part of the people of God, was a title that is so widely used that we can often be left wondering what it means. 
People used Christianity to mean everything from I'm a born-again, passionate-about-Jesus person to I go to church regularly to I got baptized 70 years ago to things like I'm a part of the Ku Klux Klan, right? There are people in America who identify Christianity with all of those things. And so that can leave us with the same question, right? We can be just as confused as Israel about what it means to be part of the people of God. Um, Israel was confused because they didn't have any idea. We can be confused because there are a million different ideas, and many of them don't fit with Scripture. What this text provides is the beginning of a framework for us to answer that question. As Israel prepares to receive God's law at Sinai, there are three things that he really communicates to them. Based around these three times that Moses goes up the mountain and comes back down, three things that he really tries to communicate them about what it means to be a part of the people of God. And so what I want us to do this morning is just walk through the story, see these three ascents of Moses, and see what those three things are. All right? First of all, The first thing God communicates about being his people is that we are meant to be a people with purpose. A people with purpose. God comes to meet with Moses. And really there's two things he says initially. First, he anchors his whole message on the salvation that he's already worked. If you read verse 4, he says, You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. And that's going to recur throughout the rest of Exodus. But the point there is the first thing God says is this is what I have done, right? This is the first part of the story and why it matters. I have saved you by my power and mercy alone. Um, And so what comes next is not here's how to be saved, right? It's here's what you do because you're saved. But then God says this to Israel. He says, now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession, Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. So he says three things about who they are. First, he says they will be his treasured possession. And the emphasis there is on this treasured part. While all the earth belongs to God, um, he has this special relationship of love and delight, he says, with his people. And that treasured possession part is the part that I think Old Testament Israel and maybe plenty of people who would identify as Christians like to emphasize, that we are God's treasured possession. He loves us and delights in us. And that is true. However, we also need to join it with the second two things he says. The second thing God says is that Israel will be a kingdom of priests. And that image, a priest in this world, was seen as this sort of go-between between the people and God, right? So you have God in the heavens, and you have this nation or whatever, and they would understand priests as being the people who would go between the people and God, represent them to God, and come with God's word and reveal God to the people. And so when God describes Israel as a kingdom of priests, what he's really imagining is that when you look at the earth, the priests of the earth, are meant to be Israel in the sense that they are the people that communicate God and show forth God to the nations. That when the nations want to come into relationship with God, Israel serves as his representative. And then the third thing God says is that Israel is supposed to be a holy nation. And we're going to talk more about that idea of holiness in just a minute. But for now, just realize that it runs alongside that idea of priesthood. 
that the nations are supposed to see something different about Israel. There's this way that they're set apart among the nations, and so that the other peoples of the world could look at Israel and see things about God. Now, here's why that matters, right? When we take all of that together, that means that Israel has a purpose. There are people with a purpose, as we said. God is not just saving them, um, you know, for, for whatever arbitrary reason, but he's saving them so that they can serve this role in the world, so that they can communicate God to the world and show forth his glory and goodness to the world. And really, in many ways, the Old Testament, as you read the unfolding story, is a story about God's people getting confused about that purpose and God doing things to correct them and try to turn them back towards it. That um, they start to think that, like, God must think that we're awesome. We're God's favorite ethnic group and nation. You see that kind of creeping come in, and then God chastises them and says, No, I saved you so that the nations might see my goodness and glory. So how does that meet us? Well, the thing we have to recognize right away is that Israel's calling is 100% the same as our calling. Um, Our, uh, I mean, it's changed in that we're not a nation, right? We're scattered among the nations as the church now, a people from every tribe and tongue. But our purpose in Scripture is viewed exactly the same. In fact, if you look at, um, at how Peter puts it, in 1 Peter, he's writing to the church, and he says, but you... Believers are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Does that sound familiar? Interestingly, that verse gets quoted sometimes as if that's a change from the Old Testament, but Peter is just straight up quoting what God says to Israel when he first constitutes them as his people. So what hasn't changed is our mission. What has changed is that because Jesus is now king of his people, we have a much greater hope that that mission will be fulfilled. But we'll come back to that a little bit later. All right? So we have this mission, and then how do we do that? Well, we see that answer in the text as well. If you look back at verse 5, you might notice that all of this is conditioned on Israel's obedience. God says that this is true if you obey me fully and keep my covenant by which God means be faithful to the promises you make with me. Then you will be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And we hear that, and I think we can wonder about that part of it, that you need to obey me fully, because as Christians, we're like, well, aren't we saved by grace? How does this call to be obedient fit in with that? And that's going to be another recurring thing we'll talk about in Exodus. So let's just spell it out here. The simplest way to think about that is to recognize that there are two questions that the Bible addresses. Two separate questions that we need to keep separate. One question is, what is the foundation of our relationship with God? What is the grounds on which we have a relationship with God? And then the other question is, what is the goal of our relationship with God? What's the purpose for which God saves us? And um, the, the way Scripture answers the first question, right, what's the foundation, is simple. It would say that the foundation of our relationship with God is his grace alone. That is what initiates the relationship. As, Jesus, as John so succinctly puts it, he says, we love because God first loved us. God comes and establishes this relationship with us and saves us before we've done anything out of love or obedience to him. Grace initiates the relationship and grace sustains the relationship. It's still the foundation of how we relate to God. 
Paul writes to the church in Galatia, arguing against these people who are saying, well, yeah, you know, it started out with grace, but now you got to obey or else God's going to just, you know, and you got to follow all these rules. And his response is, "Um, I would like to learn just one thing from you, church. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish after beginning by means of the Spirit, are you now trying to finish by means of the flesh? Which is to say you started this thing by God's grace and the foundation continues to be God's grace. You don't suddenly start earning it later on. So we have to be clear about that first before we answer the second question. Because, um, because never at no point does uh, the foundation of our relationship rest on us, right? It is never the case that, um, that God saves us because we are good or obedient or have gotten our act together. So that's true. But then we said there's a second question, which is what is the goal of our relationship with God? What's the purpose for which God has saved us? And the answer to that question is that we are called to obedience in order to advance God's work in the world. We are called to obedience in order to advance God's work in the world. We will unpack that, but first let me show you how those two questions fit together in the Bible, because it often just puts those things side by side. So if you look at Ephesians 2, which is our declaration of pardon for this month, but in verses 8 and 9, you see an answer to the first question. Paul says, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves, it is a gift of God. Not by works, so that no one can boast. So we're saved by that gifted grace of God. But then if you keep reading verse 10, For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. God saved us by grace alone, gifted grace alone, for the purpose of our doing good works that he's prepared beforehand to do. So when we think about that, here's the best way I know to fit those things together. In parenting, I think, if you're parenting in a godly way, there are two things that you're communicating to your children at the same time. True things. One, you are communicating to them that you love them no matter what. No matter what they do, no matter what happens, you are their parent and you love them. The foundation of your relationship with your kids should be that love. But at the same time, you're also calling your children to grow into a certain kind of person. A loving person, a selfless person, a person who's responsible, a person who used their gifts and talents to serve the world. You are telling them that they have this purpose and this calling that they need to pursue. And you recognize, if you think about parenting, that you need both of those things at the same time or else things get really ugly. If you call your kids to a purpose without giving them that foundation of love, you can wreck your kids, right? You can leave them in a place where they feel like You're this perfectionist that's demanding these things that they can't live up to, and they end up beaten down and discouraged as they try to live into it. But if you give the the unconditional love without calling your kids towards the purpose, right, then you create spoiled brats, right? You create children who who view the world in this kind of self-centered way that think that it's all about them and everyone should just bow down to them and do what they want. You need both together to raise kids in a way that is going to lead to their flourishing. And God, as our Heavenly Father, relates to us the same way. Our relationship with Him is founded on His unconditional love. And it is meant to call us into a purpose in the world. And then as we come to that purpose, 
We said that it is, we're called to obedience in order to advance God's work in the world. That's our purpose, right? And we kind of see how that works for Israel. They're supposed to be this kingdom of priests and this holy nation. And the way they do that is that they live in these ways that God commands them to together and that the world sees um, them as this, this, this nation that's different, but that there's something good there, there's something true there as they live that life together. And then that actually leads to them being drawn to God. And again, in many ways as God's people today, that same thing is true for us. What we are called to in obedience is a life together that shows this better way, this beautiful way of God. And as we live that out in our lives, that's actually then a way that God accomplishes his mission in the world. It's important to keep that last part in mind, too. I think sometimes we can communicate obedience as just a sort of hollow command. But God's purpose in revealing to us how to live is that we can then be that kingdom of priests to show him to the nations. So that's the first answer. We are a people with a purpose. But there's more in this story, right? So Moses comes and delivers this first word, and the people commit themselves to follow it in verse 8. They respond together and they say, We will do everything the Lord has said. So Moses brings their answer back to the Lord. Moses goes back up the mountain. And then the Lord says to Moses in verse 10, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow. Have them wash their clothes and be ready by the third day. Because on that day the Lord will come down to Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. So God tells the people to be consecrated. That word consecrate means to set apart. To take something ordinary and do something to set it apart for a special purpose. And there is a couple of ways that Moses consecrates Israel in this passage. Um, We see the first one here, they're to wash their clothes. This is not a world where you washed your clothes every day. This is a world where you would wear your outer clothes for like months sometimes between washing them. But they're all supposed to wash their clothes as a symbol of cleanness. Um, In verse 15, he also has them abstain from sexual relations. And the thing to recognize about these actions, the point of these sorts of consecrating actions is not that the stuff is bad, right? It's not sinful to not wash your robe. Um, It's not, I mean, you know, I mean, marital intimacy is not sinful. But the point is that these are normal things, part of normal life, that God is having Israel change to remind them that what is about to happen is not normal. All right, so Israel consecrates themselves. And then Moses, in a sense, consecrates the mountain, too. He sets it apart in verse 12. God says, put limits for the people around the mountain and tell them, be careful that you do not approach the mountain or touch the foot of it. Whoever that touches the mountain will be put to death. They're to be stoned or shot with arrows. Not a hand is to be laid on them. No person or animal should be permitted to live. Only when the ram's horn sounds a long blast may they approach the mountain. So they erect this boundary around the mountain. And any person or animal that crosses that boundary is to be killed, which is unsettling, right? So what is going on with that? Well, we need to back up a minute. And this is in many ways preparing for what's going to come next in the story. But um, one of the most common words the Bible uses to describe God is holy. He is holy. In fact, Scripture describes him as holy, 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 to really get the point across, which is not something it does with any of his other attributes. And we use that word all the time in churches. But we can actually, I think, 
like, how do you define that word if someone asked you for a definition? Biblically, what the word holy means is set apart. And if that sounds familiar, that's because we talked about how Israel is to be consecrated, and that word literally means to make holy, um, to set them apart. Um, when we say God is holy, um, and we're supposed to consecrate, set ourselves apart as we prepare for his appearing, it's because we recognize that he is set apart. And here's what that means. It means that in Scripture, God is fundamentally above and different from us. He's fundamentally, which means it's not some choice, right? God's not putting on airs or something. Just a part of his nature is that he is above and different from us as his creatures. His, um, his power is so great that carelessly approaching it would be like, like grabbing those high-voltage wires coming out of the nuclear plant down there, right? His perfection is so great that for sinners to come into its presence, it, it would be like bacteria deciding to jump into like, anti, you know, an, an, a, a disinfectant bath. I mean, it is just part of his nature that he represents that otherness. And the reason Israel is called to consecrate themselves and the reason that this boundary is around the mountain is because in the text, God's drawing near in his holiness is actually viewed as dangerous for Israel. <laughs> that later in this chapter, the image will be that if someone were to come up into God's presence, into that holiness, and then come back to the camp, that God might break out in their midst. Like it's almost this infection or something they would carry because of this dangerous, serious thing they're about to encounter. All of which is meant to communicate to Israel that in addition to being a people with purpose, they're meant to be a set-apart people, a holy people set apart. When we say that we are the people of God, our expectation should be that certain things about God begin to become true of us. Um, and one of the things that is meant to be true of us is that sort of holiness. Not the same sort of like Indiana Jones melt-your-face holiness of God, but that there's to be a set-apartness for us as God's people. For example, Peter puts it like this. He says, But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in your conduct. Since it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. God is set apart, and so he calls us as his people to be set apart. In fact, the New Testament regularly uses those kinds of images of consecration and setting apart objects from the Old Testament as images for what we're supposed to do in our life. So like Paul talking to Timothy says, Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel, an object for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. So he's saying that we, in a sense, as Christians, as God's people, are supposed to be like these objects in the temple, these things that are set apart and purified for the work of God. So then what does that mean for us, to be a set-apart, holy people? Well, in some ways, that is too big a topic to answer in the next minute or two, and that's why um, part of the meaning for Israel is what's going to be answered in the chapters to come in Exodus. We're actually going to be at the beginning of Exodus 20, which is what this is setting us up for. God comes and gives the Ten Commandments, and we're actually going to be um, in our coming sermon slowing down and working through all ten of those commandments in detail because they provide, in many ways, some of the categories for Israel's set-apartness. But for this morning, I just want to reflect on one more basic thing that means. The idea of consecration for Israel 
rested in taking these ordinary things and ordinary parts of life and setting them apart for the purpose of God. Israel gets this whole system that God gives them to do that. And like we said, the point of that consecration is not that these things are bad, right? It's not that all the the unclean foods and different things about clothes and different things about Israel, you know, it's not that, you know, that eating those things, eating lobster is not evil, but the point is that these are all these actions Israel is to take to show to the world that they are a people that are set apart from the nations, that they're different. Um, It's meant to be a visible reminder that Israel is set apart. And therefore, then, as the nations looked at that, they were to recognize that these other ways that God was at work in Israel's midst were also setting them apart as good. Their moral assumptions and the gods of those nations were not equal to the Lord. One of the great failures of Christianity in the modern world, I think, is that we have lost some of that sense of set-apartness. We, in our day, expect that the Christian faith should seem normal to people. That um, God's commandments, people should just read them and be like, oh yeah, we all agree with that. And when that doesn't happen, many of us in the modern world can start to fudge things because we, we, we aren't used to the idea that we should be a set-apart people, right? All the stuff that the Bible says about money and sex and loving your enemies and worshiping the Lord alone as God and all that other stuff that doesn't make sense in our world, we're like, well, there must be a problem with it, right? Because, because people, that doesn't seem normal to the world. But what scripture insists and in images throughout is that that is not a problem, but what should be expected as God's people. That we should expect to be weird, right? Like when you read all these things in the Old Testament and you're like, that, you know, Israel just that seems kind of weird. Like that was the point. The nations were supposed to feel that way when they saw God's people. Um, And if that's not true of us at all, that should give us pause and we should start to examine how we think and live and ask, is, you know, is this the way that God calls us to live? Are we embodying the kind of holiness that he would call us to as his people? Again, in many ways, the details of that we're going to be spending, you know, nine, nine weeks after this unpacking as we work through the Ten Commandments. But, um, but that said, we're a people with a purpose and a set-apart people. And then there's one more element that this story adds. And it's the one that I think is not what we expect. The third thing I think this story tries to teach Israel and us is that we are to be a humble people. A humble people. So Moses has gone up to God and come back to Israel twice. And the first thing that happens then is this is the point where God sort of shows forth his presence on the mountain. So start in verse 16. It says, On the morning of the third day there was thunder and lightning with a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. Everyone in the camp trembled. Right? And then Israel comes out to the foot of this mountain and they're scared. And then we're told Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire and the smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a furnace and the whole mountain trembled violently. You just got to stop before we go on and just appreciate the awesomeness of all of that, right? It's like this crazy thunderstorm with sheets of lightning and the mountain is covered in fire with smoke billowing up and the earth is shaking and it's like, kind of like trumpet blast is, you know, is perpetually sounding in the air. Um, That is, you know, that is scary. The people are right to be terrified. And then in verse 20, it says, the Lord descended on the top of Mount Sinai and called Moses to the top of the mountain. So Moses went up. 
And again, like, I just got to say, like, you got to respect Moses in this moment, right? <laughs> because, like, I would not want to go walking into the middle of that. But Moses goes up into that. And then this is what the Lord tells him. He says, Go down and warn the people so they do not force their way through to see the Lord and many of them perish. Even the priests who approach the Lord must consecrate themselves or the Lord will break out against them. So here's what's interesting about that. God already said that once, right? He already had Moses put this boundary around the mountain and say, nobody can come across this boundary. Um, And Moses finally goes up on the mountain and God's like, no, go back down and tell the people this again. Um, It kind of makes you think like, wait, why is that happening? And that's exactly what Moses asks in verse 23. He says to the Lord, the people can't come up Mount Sinai because you yourself warned us, put limits around the mountain and set it apart as holy. He actually seems kind of like irritated at God, which given that he's in the middle of this like inferno thunderstorm earthquake talking to him, like is kind of nuts. But God doubles down. He says, go down and bring Aaron up with you. But the priests and the people must not force their way through to come up to the Lord or he will break out against them. He says it a third time. The people must not try to approach the Lord. So what's going on? Like, why do you have that, that, that whole conversation here? Well, I think the answer is that God wants to make clear to Israel that even though they've done this stuff, they've heard this mission and they've said, yeah, we're going to obey this, and they've gone through this consecration and gotten all ready for God to come down, even though they've done all of that, they still are not worthy to come before the living God. Despite their mission and their consecration, they would still be annihilated if they thought they could just walk into his presence. We talk sometimes about humility. One of the virtues that we should cultivate as Christians is humility. But what is true humility in Scripture? In the Bible, it comes from the recognition that God is infinitely greater and better than we are. It starts with having a proper sense of who we are in relation to God. We are not, it would tell us, the greatest beings in the universe. Not by a long shot. One of the dangers of the kind of secular world that we live in is that there's a real sense in which you can feel like, yeah, human beings are the best things in the universe, right? We're the smartest things, we've made the best things, and that can make us start to believe that the universe exists for us and that it's our right to consume and use and destroy as we will. But in Christianity... We are forced to recognize that God is greater. And not just kind of like slightly greater. He is so exalted above us that to behold him would destroy us. That he created and sustains and rules and redeems all things and is before all things and above all things and behind and after them. None of this is about us or for us. Instead, everything that exists exists to show forth the beauty of that creator. And if that is true, that should make us humble as God's people. Our posture toward the world has got to change, right? We live in a borrowed world using borrowed bodies on borrowed time. Everything belongs to God. And that means that everything is for him. And that means that our spirit in the world should be as humble servants saying this is all God's and my purpose in this is simply to serve him in it. 
On top of that, um, in light of God's holiness, we are also not morally good people. (laughs) One of the most heartbreaking things to me about many forms of Christianity in our world is that people use it as a tool to feel morally superior. And that is insane. (laughs) Even in our most upright moments, when we are at our best wearing our church clothes, we're nailing it, right? We are far from God's absolute perfect perfection. Here is the level of morality it would take for us to come into God's holy presence. Every action would have to be perfectly aimed at serving the world and serving God all the time. We would never do anything selfishly or thoughtlessly, and we would never to do, fail to do any possible good thing that would arise in our lives. We would be perfectly consistent and perfectly disciplined. Our words would always be encouraging and edifying, never making light of sin or tearing down another person. Our thoughts would be perfectly conformed to God's law and God's glory and everything. We would never think as selfish or greedy or lustful or arrogant or covetous or untrue thing. And if we fall short, short of that standard, right, And look, we all fall way short of that standard in our lives. Then we are unworthy to enter the presence of God. We are sinners. And we have hope because, as we said, the foundation of our relationship with God is his grace. Right? That's that's why we need the gospel of Jesus because that's the way that we enter into God's presence. But if that is true, then we also have to be humble. We cannot take Christianity and use it like some robe that we wrap around ourselves with a sense of moral superiority, right? I mean, look, yes, there are within the world some people who make somewhat better and somewhat worse choices in their lives, but on the scale of God's perfect holiness, right? On that scale, like, we are all so far over here that you cannot even see the gap between us. We are all deeply sinful. And here's why that matters. That humility matters because when we talk about having a purpose and about being set apart, those are real callings, but without humility, they can become very dangerous. We can turn our calling to be righteous into permission to be self-righteous. We can use the idea of being called to be holy as an excuse to think we're holier than thou. And the way we avoid that trap the way we can seek to be the people God calls us to be without doing that um, is by returning to that holiness of God. When we return to God's greatness and his perfection and our need for the gospel and his grace, that is the only way that we can can then um, live that calling out. That when we recognize that the reason that we enter the presence of God is by his kindness and not by anything that we deserve. That if it were left to us, every one of us would be annihilated coming into his holy presence. Then that, um, as that soaks into us and teaches us the truth about the world, then that actually transforms our posture in the world. So that we're able to look at the world and be those people bringing the good news of Jesus and seek to follow and obey him with a sense of humility in a way that while people on the outside looking in might still struggle with that set-apartness and that righteousness, 
they have to acknowledge that there is something different there. So let's bring that all around as we close to the original question. What does it mean to be the people of God? Well, it is meant to describe a purpose that we have in the world. We have a job to do, to show forth God's goodness by living in the world in a way that draws people to him. And as we pursue that purpose, we're called to do it in a way that is set apart. We should look different from the world because God has called us to a different kind of living. But as we embody both of those things, we must do it humbly because the way we do it has to be shaped by God's greatness and the grace of the gospel. Here's the thing I want to leave you with as we reflect on all of that. We do not um, do that simply out of like self-discipline or having good principles. We do that because we, like Israel, have encountered the living God. That's what lays behind this thing for Israel, right? As much as they're about to get these commandments and laws and regulations, as much as God's teaching them what it means to live as his people, the thing that transforms them is that at this mountain, they are meeting with God. (laughs) He is appearing and descending and drawing near to them. And that is the thing that makes them holy and calls them to live different lives. Because this holy being has met with them and rescued them and given them new purpose and place in the world. If we claim to be Christians, we are claiming that that same thing has happened to us. That in Jesus, God has drawn near and met with us. That we have his Holy Spirit dwelling in us. We experience relationship with him through his Son. And if that is true, then we have met this holy being. And that should give us a new purpose and a new place in the world as well. So let's go out with a sense of that purpose and a sense of God's presence behind it. As we have the privilege of being called his people, met with him. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you have drawn near to us. And that in your grace you've done it in a way that spares us from the judgment we deserve. Teach us, Lord, to work for you in the world, to pursue lives of purpose and righteousness. Teach us to do it, Lord, in a spirit of humility, recognizing that even in our best efforts, we cannot begin to approach your holy perfection. Thank you for loving and saving us nonetheless, Lord. Amen. Friends, as we prepare now to come to the Lord's table, We um, confess our faith in this God who has saved us using the words of the Apostles' Creed, which is printed in your bulletin. Would you join me in reciting that together? I believe... Amen.
Friends, as I'd invite the elders to come forward and we prepare to come to the Lord's table, if the transformative thing for Israel was meeting with God, I cannot help but reflect how much more striking it is that God has drawn so near in meeting with us that he doesn't simply appear to us on the mountain, keeping us on the far side of the barrier so that we're not consumed, but that he in Jesus Christ is drawn so near to us that he sits down with us at his table and offers us his body and blood. In this love and in this encounter with this gracious, holy God, we are called to recognize the foundation of our hope in his grace and the calling in our lives to be nourished by this meal as we go out with purpose into the world. And so I would invite us now as we participate to reflect on the fact that this is the table where God comes, not in thunder and fire and lightning, but in humility and kindness to meet with us and build us up. Let's give thanks for this meal. God and Father, thank you that in your Son, Jesus Christ, you have drawn even nearer and worked even greater things for us, your people. Pray that you might nourish us now by his body and blood. Amen. A couple of practical notes for you as we then enter into this time. This table does not belong to Kish. It does not belong to some sect or denomination. It belongs to Jesus. He sets it, and if you belong to Jesus and are putting your trust in him, he invites you to come. If you are not in a place where that is true of you, where you're like, I'm interested in this, but I don't think I believe this, I don't think that I'm willing to claim this as my own, welcome, and I'm so glad you're here. Look forward to talking with you and walking forward with you in this Christian thing. We would ask you not to participate in this table, but the reason is simply because to partake of these elements is to act out something with your hands that for you, you don't yet believe in your heart. And that puts you in a place of hypocrisy, which is not a healthy place for us to live. But if your hope is in the Lord Jesus Christ, then, then he invites you to come and to just be nourished by his drawing near. As I received it, so I deliver it to you. That on the night he was betrayed, our Lord took the bread and after giving thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, broken for you. Do this as often as you eat it in remembrance of me. We will receive together the bread. There's gluten-free elements in the sealed cups. And we will partake of it together once all have been served.
The body of Christ, broken for you. Take and eat. In the same manner, after the meal, our Lord took the cup, and after giving thanks, he blessed it and said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. We will receive the cup together and likewise partake as one as we are one in the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ's blood shed for you. Take and drink. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Let's stand now and sing his praises.
Amen. Friends, it is good to worship with you. As God's people, we ought to know each other. So if you don't know the people standing next to you, make sure to introduce yourself to each other. Uh, Make sure to remember the new members class on the 9th and the congregational meeting on the 24th. And also one practical note for you guys. um, I will be um, on the other side of the planet from the 10th to the 20th. So if you need anything, feel free to reach out to the office, but I won't be answering my email or phone during that time. Now go with the Lord's blessing. May the Lord bless and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up the light of his countenance on you and give you his peace today and always. Amen.